I only hope that we never lose sight of one thing, that it was all started by a mouse. Hello, everyone out there in podcast land. This is the Beyond the Mouse podcast, a podcast for all things Disney for NPR Illinois Community Voices and for the Front Row Network. I'm your host today, Craig, and I'm all by myself today because I get to have a chance to talk to somebody that I actually did get to meet in person at Fan Expo St. Louis. His name is Guy Gilchrist, and uh, you have you recognize Guy Gilchrist's work, uh, even if you don't necessarily recognize the name behind that work. He's prolific in the animation space. He's been drawing and doing so much for so long. He has this style that's just incredible. But what I want to talk to him about today in particular is his career working with Jim Henson and the Muppets. He actually was the main comic artist for the Muppets for over a decade. And he helped develop the series of Muppet Babies because they had this idea for a series, but he helped to develop the look of what we see as Muppet Babies as well. I want to talk to him a bit about that. Also, he took over the Nancy comic book strip that had been going on for years and years and years since 1938 in newspapers. And so it's this is someone that has had these different touch points of a lot of our childhoods. And it's just going to be great to talk to him. Also great to talk to him about his interactions with Jim Henson because uh, a legend that was gone way too soon, but we loved getting the opportunity to talk to people that had those interactions personally with someone that we all look up to and want to remember and getting that firsthand account, I think is just so important into their life. So I, I don't want to take up much of your time at all. I want to get you into this interview because I'm looking forward to it. So here it is, my interview with Guy Gilchrist. It is so great to welcome to Beyond the Mouse podcast, Guy Gilchrist, who I had the pleasure of actually meeting uh, at Fan Expo St. Louis back in May uh, in person. And he, you know, Guy, you actually, we started talking about my love for the Muppets. And then I mentioned that we had talked to Dave Goals and you happen to have a Gonzo with you and it's right over there in my office now. So I'm so glad to have that and glad to meet you, but thanks for coming on today. My pleasure. Now I do need to ask, so you've been in this business uh, for several decades and you have worked with some really prolific people, but we love to get a little bit of a sense of how you got started in that career. And we call it your superhero origin story. Now I know you really started at this when you were just barely a teenager and uh, there's even a story about Mad Magazine out there and everything else, but I want our listeners to know from you, how is it that you went ahead and got started in animation, in uh, drawing and everything else? You know, well, uh, I'll, I'll try to make this brief, but at 65 years old, there's an awful lot there, you know, but uh, my mother was a very good artist and she was a single mom and uh, she would show me how you could draw an oval and make different characters out of it. And then I would walk across the street from the diner that she worked at and I would look at the uh, the television and Walter Lance, the Woody Woodpecker show that would be on in the window of the appliance store. And there was Walter doing the exact same thing. Well, you know, cut to when I was 10 years old and I got an address from a talk show called the Art Linkletter Show on TV and uh, for Walter Lance. And I sent my artwork to him. I was 10 
and the most famous animator in the world wrote me back. Wow. He told me that if I never, ever quit and I kept on practicing the way that I was, I had a lot of talent and someday I was going to be a successful cartoonist. And really that was the impetus, uh, you know, my mother's support and Walter that really got me going. I was very driven. My, she, she uh, remarried and uh, uh, to an upholsterer and outside of the upholsterers, uh, my uh, stepfather's uh, place, I would hang on shirt cardboard drawings that I was doing of stuff and I was selling them and, you know, trying to make some bank. And as time went on, you know, collect the money, uh, get on a train, go to New York uh, with my, you know, childlike stuff, but knowing that if I was going to make it in this business, I was either going to make it in New York or Hollywood, and I couldn't take a train to Hollywood. So mm-hmm. I would take the train to, to New York, and I started you know, going everywhere. By the time I was 16, I walked into uh, an office of Whitman Publishing in New York, and Whitman did coloring books of uh, Woody Woodpecker, the Walter Lance characters, the Disney characters and stuff. And uh, I met a very, a very nice man who was very, very good to me named John Salardo. He became sort of a, a guardian angel for me over the years. And uh, he gave me my first job doing a Disney coloring book. And wouldn't you know, years and years, uh, seven years later, when I uh, auditioned and got the part, Uh, of writing and drawing the Muppets comic strip for the whole world with Jim Henson, I walk into the bullpen in New York City at King Features, and who's there but John? And John's going, so, guess you, you know, you don't need to be drawing the stuff on a park bench like you were when I met you, huh? You know, you've come a little bit of a ways. And uh, so that was really the beginnings. I love hearing those stories of mentorships. And I also love it when you can see people marrying kind of their passion. And you, of course, it's it's clear you have a passion for this. You continue to do this to this day. And uh, also now you probably see it from the other side of things. So I want to ask, what's it like being a mentor to younger artists now? Uh, you know, it's it's an interesting thing in that I've been, uh, you know, I've, I've been in that position for a long time. Uh, you know, I would get fan mail, you know, even going all the way back to when I was working for Weekly Reader and just before Jim, where, I, you know, because Weekly Reader was in every school, kids would send me drawings and all of that. And I would always be going in front of groups and talking and teaching, you know, uh, cartooning and everything, because I'm I didn't go to art school or anything. I my schooling happened because of people that cared that I was working with and they showed me the way. So that was exactly what I wanted to do for them. My core belief, two things. Number one, the reason I got into this was because I had nothing. I didn't know I didn't have anything. I I had the world. I had a piece of paper and a pencil and I could draw something and make you happy. That made me happy. That was my joy. That was my rush. That was my trip. 
And when I see that in other people, I want them to have the same thing. The other core belief is that as far as schooling and everything, it doesn't matter where you go or what, you know, how you get there. What really truly matters is you believing in yourself, you pushing yourself, you really, really wanting this, and you will find the way. Everybody's path is different, but you will find the way. So certainly, the very least that I can do when I'm meeting uh, people that I just, I was just in Austin over the weekend and met a ton of people, a lot of uh, artists of different ages that want advice. And this is the stuff that I'm giving to them. And I'm also telling them about, oh, you know, Preston Blair's books that were so important to me. And, uh, you know, and to most of the Disney artists that you're, you know, the, you know, John Pomeroy and Tom mm-hmm. Bancroft, my buddies here in Nashville. You know, we all had those same books and we all had that same passion. So I'm trying to pass that along to the next generation. And that's so great. And of course, I want to talk about your work with Jim. And also you you've drawn just uh, almost every character imaginable <laughs> yeah, and, and you've taken so. over, you know, taking over the Nancy comic strips from a, a 1938 property. I want to get to all of that, but because you're talking about these fan interactions and that's how you and I uh, had a chance to meet. What, what is it about these cons? You do an awful lot of them. You do fan expos, you do other conventions. What is it about connecting with the fans in that way that you enjoy about that experience? You're working in a bubble whether you're working on um, a children's book, a television show, a comic strip, whatever the, the, the final vehicle is going to be to get out there, you know, drawing and writing is a very solitary thing. Yeah. You know, before there were emails and everything, you get fan mail, but you're by yourself. Now you may have a team of people, but it's really you there. And to go out now after all of these years of being in heavy production with daily deadlines for 40 years or so, uh, or maybe over that, I, I guess, you know, to be able to meet the folks that it means so much to your work and the work of, you know, of Jim Henson or, uh, you know, the other Disney guys, the Warner Brothers guys, MGM, whatever it happens to be that's touching you, uh, for them to be able to put a face to that to have that time, uh, you know, to talk to you about it, to give them the stories and also just to, and I know it's not just love for me, but it's, they're meeting me. They didn't meet Chuck Jones. They didn't meet Robert McKimson. You know, they didn't meet Hannah and Barbara. They didn't meet Jim. So the love that is coming in is for all of us. Mm. And, 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 and all of those people that I just mentioned, I have a great love for as well. And I'm sure that it's all these different ages too, because I mean, yeah, here I am a 35 year old and I'm flipping through your portfolio and just like joy, like you said, it's that smile that comes to your face. And so you're at your booth and you're probably seeing that from children as young as five or six years old, all the way up to people that are in their sixties and seventies that uh, for different reasons, these, these characters have survived pop culture and really have an impact on so many different types of people. Yeah. And it's families, it's families, uh, it's individuals, it's people of all ages. There's families that are, you know, bringing their little babies up, you know, in the strollers and they've got their baby Kermits and their baby piggies or their pink Panther or whatever it is. You know, you've got all the turtle guys, 
the the love that they're sharing with me there are very poignant stories about the 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 that the muppet show was the grandparents the parents and them all together mm. and so when they see you know a poster of rainbow connection or something or the original artwork in the books it's bringing them all the way back you know they'll tell me about Emmett Otter and and Muppet Christmas Carol and all that and what it means to their families and they're so happy to show that they have DVD copies of the Fraggles and the different Muppet movies or Tom and Jerry or whatever it happens to be. And, you know, I'm signing those things and they're saying like, look, good parenting, right? Good parenting. Yeah. So, you know, my kids, and they start singing the Fraggle Rock song or the Muppet Baby song to me. And these are three and four year olds. This is awesome. That's so great. So I do want to get into your work with Jim. Now you start working with him uh, in the early 80s and become basically the comic artist for them. And so putting out these comics that are being viewed by literally millions of people a day in uh, newspapers all over the world. Talk to me about how that gig comes about. You mentioned it a little bit uh, towards the beginning, but dive a little bit deeper into getting the chance to work with Jim in those early days and what that was like for you. Uh, so it was around the beginning of 80. I had met Mort Walker, the creator of Beetle Bailey and Hein Lois. And uh, Mort had uh, taken his own money and made, uh, he had a castle, a ward castle, and he made it into the Cartoon Museum, Museum of Cartoon Art in Portchester, New York. When I found out it existed way on the other side of, uh, you know, Connecticut on the New York border, I was there all the time. Well, I eventually met Mort after doing a couple of chalk talks for some famous uh, cartoonists, because I wasn't really famous. I only had a weekly reader comic book, a funny animal comic book. But Mort said, um, you know, hey, you know, you do that pretty good, meaning, you know, talk, speak in front of people. And uh, he says, there's only, uh, there's only a few things wrong, though. Nobody knows who the heck you are or what the heck you do. So who are you and what do you do? And I ran out to my truck and I got the Super Colonel comics, the funny animal comic I was doing for Weekly Reader and whatever else I had. He remembered that. And playing golf a year or two later with uh, Bill Yates, the head of King Features, Bill was lamenting the fact that they had tried out 200 different teams over two years and uh, they had the Muppet show comic strip that was going to be the biggest thing in the world, but they were about to lose it because the Henson folks, he says, they're crazy. They didn't like anybody. I don't know what mm. to do. And Mort's there in the golf cart going, uh, so that's a frog and a pig, right? <laughs> well, there's this hippie kid draws pretty good, funny animals. And I got the call from Bill. Uh, I tried out. I had no experience at all, but I loved the Muppets. I was a huge Muppets fan and had been before there was a Muppet show, before there was Sesame Street, when there was just Rolf, Rolf the dog, you know, and the and the skits on Steve Allen and Ed Sullivan and all of that. And uh, so I was a huge fan. There was no artwork out there really for me to see, but I had to come up with something. I mean, I went and bought a Kermit Fisher Price doll, you know, so I could figure out how to draw Kermit. And then Michael Frith had done a couple of Sesame Street books. So I kind of got the gist of it. You know, mm -hmm. Michael became my boss. Uh, anyway, I tried out. He liked it. I just kept on sending stuff in. He didn't tell me not to. And they never told me I didn't have the job. 
Uh, eventually, after about a month and a half, two months, something like that, I got an invitation to go to 117 East 69th Street, um, uh, the uh, the Upper East Side near Lexington, which was the Brownstone, which was Muppet Paradise. That was Muppets HQ. You know, the, the workshop was in the basement. Michael's office was on the second floor. I met Michael. He was very, very nice, incredibly talented, most talented person I've ever met, besides Jim, I think. And uh, but they were noncommittal. They just said, hey, you know, well, we like it. And, you know, this is what we do. And da, da, da. I took all of that in and just kept going. Okay. And then around 10 months or so goes by and the phone rings and it's Jerry Jewell you know, uh, with Jack Burns, the head writer, so the Muppet Show. And Jerry's going, starts just talking a, a gonzo uh, bit with me. And I'm like, Mr. Jewel, what's this all about? And he goes, well, didn't Michael call you? You've had the job for a month. <laughs> and so I had to sit there in my garage studio in Unionville, Connecticut, and every dream beyond every dream had just happened and i had to pretend to be an adult right and do all of this and then go crazy after i hung up the phone after about an hour with jerry that's so great well what i will say is that at least in our conversations with dave uh it seems like maybe there's not necessarily an adult vibe in that room all of the time. So I'm sure that they would have given you some kind of leniency there. But I, I actually do want to talk about the the culture of the Muppet Studio and working with Jim, because yeah. it seems like, you know, there's these great minds and these great innovators that sometimes have a, a hard time connecting their imagination with that kind of empathy piece and working with people. And it seems like Jim had that in spades, that he was able to really be empathetic. There's actually a, a in the, the Brian uh, J. Jones book about Jim, there's this anecdote about him meeting with a child as Kermit and like that interaction that he had with children. And so it, we don't get often a chance to talk to people that have worked with a legend like Jim Henson. And so I'm just wondering if you can share some insights into that work culture, but then also just Jim in general. Jim had all of these gifts. Okay, the ones that we see on film are evident. But Jim, you immediately were attracted to him in every way. He had a a very open, friendly, almost childlike but very knowing way about him he was incredibly charming and uh, and welcoming and open and here's this guy that's you know the Walt Disney of our generation this guy is just it and you know and you're totally blown away but he always looked directly at me was completely engrossed in what we were doing and wanted to share the vision that he had and make you a part of it. Mm. Jim, certainly, I guess, had an ego. We, we all do. But it wasn't the kind of ego that was powering himself over anyone. It was this ego to say, come on, let's make this the greatest thing that we can. And the hardest working person in the room always was Jim. So you were always working very, very hard. The, the stress of 80 million people reading that comic 
would have paralyzed me. So I concentrated on making Jim happy. If Jim was happy with it, I figured I was pretty golden. And so uh, Jim also was the sort of boss that wouldn't exist. He would hire you after, I mean, it was a year's audition for me, but then he wouldn't tell you what to do. He gave you your own wings and would direct you here and there, sometimes without you even knowing it, you know, by just a thing here, a thing there, a gesture, whatever it happened to be. He saw something inside of me and in everybody that worked with him that said, this is someone that gets it. This is Mm -hmm. someone that's understanding where we're at. And so we were all, and, and he also knew that there was a lot of stress. We have daily deadlines, you know, but, He made it fun. You know, there's a very famous quote from Jim. Magic is hard work, but hard work can be fun. And to show you how much he thought of that and about everyone around him. So if he's in production in Toronto or in in London or in New York, over at CTW, where whatever whatever's going on, you remember I'm not there because I'm doing publishing production. Right? Jim would leave messages in the middle of the night on my machine. I had just gotten a machine, um, or send telegrams, uh, or you know, or schedule a phone call, or ask me to come to one of the production sets. Uh, you know, take a break for a day and fly me in and then fly me out just so that we were always connecting, that he was always, he was always making sure that you knew you were loved, that you were cared about, that you were part of the family. And he was thinking of you, uh, never anybody like him. I mean, absolutely nobody like this that could care for a thousand people all at the same time do three or four different projects where every detail was materializing out of his imagination, but also the imaginations of the people that he brought in. The seed that he would see inside you, what made him hire you. He almost had a 1,000 batting average. I mean, there were a few, but about a thousand batting average on saying, I think that's the person. Well, and you mentioned uh, Walt Disney for our age and Walt had a lot of that uh, drive in him where he could see something in someone that they might not even realize. There's kind of this famous story amongst Disney fans about Existencio who wrote a lot of the lyrics to things like the Haunted Mansion and to other uh, attractions, Pirates of the Caribbean, these, these songs we know, but he was like, I'm not a writer, Walt, what are you talking about? And here he is putting down these lyrics that everybody knows now. So it's, it's cool to see see that how you can kind of they can tap into that human potential that maybe even people didn't understand that they had themselves and so i'm a baby of the 80s and then going into the 90s and so i have you to thank for uh, lots of hours in front of my television because i think that you are instrumental in really developing the look and what would ultimately become the muppet babies and so can you talk to me about how that came about and how that evolved from 
kind of seeing the Muppets in the Muppet show, then getting them to the comics and then developing what now would become what we know as the Muppet Babies. When I started drawing the Muppets, it was different than any other project that I had had. In the past, it'd be like, okay, you're going to try to draw in the style of Floyd Gottfriedson or try to draw in the style of Chuck Jones. Uh, But there were no cartoons of the Muppets. Also, a a daily comic strip is going to be very, very small. And we're looking at the number one show in the world with all the color, the, the, the personalities, the, the, the movement, the music, the voices, all of that. Meanwhile, we're going to try to distill that and make it work in black and white six days a week and color on Sundays. Um, and so it was really, I had to learn how to not really draw the puppets themselves, but to give emotions and movement and sort of caricature them as if they were live people into uh, cartoons. So, you know, the heads got bigger, the eyes got bigger, they all had bodies, all of that kind of stuff, and they and they had a lot of expressions. Well, unbeknownst to me, because I was working in Connecticut at home and going into 117 for meetings and whatnot, but within 117, Jim Mahan and Isabel Miller and Michael were coming up with this idea that, of course, you saw first in Muppets Take Manhattan. Yes, well, yeah. I'm Right. So I get a phone call from Michael one day and I'm just going to say it was a Tuesday. OK. OK. Now, remember, I'm from the 70s, so I'm just going to I'm making up days. But totally anyway, fine. <laughs> let's just say it was a Tuesday. And uh, Michael is saying, so we're we, we're going to do this thing and it's going to be like an MTV video, which MTV was brand new. Um, and it's, you know, we're doing this retro song about dreams and all of that. And, and, and all of the Muppets are going to be babies. Now you're drawing them every single day. So we want your take on what they all look like. Now concentrate on the big six, meaning the most popular six characters, uh, in the Muppets, but draw them all. And I'm going like, Okay, but if I draw baby Statler and Waldorf, they're going to be 39. And Michael goes, now, <laughs> die, die. You can do so. I know you want to do jokes with your thing, you know. And, and he was sort of saying, you know, look, remember that they can't cross the street and stuff like that. So figure that out, that they'll be, you know, like in a little uh, little room with cradles and stuff. And they, they so they live in their dreams. I'm okay. And uh, he said, oh, by the way, you need to bring this in on the train on Thursday. Jim will be here on Thursday and we need, you know, your stuff. So I basically had like 36 hours to, you know, to take, uh, uh, you know, to, and and Michael had uh, FedExed me uh, the, the first sculpts of baby Rolf, I believe it was, Uh, you know, there was no, no skin on him or anything yet, but they were sculpting it, you know? And so I was getting a feeling for things about how that might go. And so then I did all the drawings, got it to New York on time. Jim liked it. And here we went. That's just so great. And I mean, like now we, you can kind of see 
that progression and the Muppet Babies are something that still is so ingrained in me. And it, it of course, continues on today. I mean, there's a, a new Muppet Babies right now that's going on. And so it's just incredible the the impact that those original pieces of animation that you would come up with, uh, they live on. And I think that's just so wonderful. I do want to ask you about some of the other properties because, like I said, you've drawn so much. But I, I wonder about Nancy in particular because uh-huh. here is a comic strip that had been going on since 1938, uh, well preceded you. And I'm just wondering about like the the type of responsibility that you felt when you took on that job. Was it more pressure than even uh, working for Jim or working for the Muppets than because of the, the legacy? Or was it like, okay, I need to set all that aside and I need to put, I need to know that this is now mine and I am going to move it forward from here. What, what kind of, what kind of mindset do you, you get with that? Well, it's a really, that's a very, very good question. Um, uh, there's, there's, there are different sorts of pressures and different sorts of stresses. Every single uh, babysitting of an icon or taking over an icon has its, uh, has its own uh, thing. Um, Jim's was by far, I feel, much more stressful because we were creating something uh, in a new medium that was already the most popular thing in the world. When I got, uh, when I tried out for Nancy in, I guess it was 95, early 95, and then it came out, our version came out uh, Labor Day weekend, I think, of 95. Anyway, the phone call had come in. Eventually, at first, I had said, no, I wasn't going to do it. Um, because... Uh, uh, Jerry Scott had been doing it for like 10 years. Uh, he had taken it away from the Ernie Bushmiller thing. Uh, Ernie Bushmiller style and my style were completely different. I'm more of a, you know, Disney-esque, you know, Walt Kelly kind of a guy. And, uh, you know, Chuck Jonesy kind of a guy. And uh, so I honestly didn't think I could do it. Well, once I thought I can't do it, that got me kind of, Okay, yeah, you come on. Now. <laughs> and so for that's, about a, that's week, the right kind of mindset, right? <laughs> so for about a week without saying anything to anybody, I grabbed as much scrap as I could and I painstakingly, slavishly tried to do the characters. And after about a week, I, I called my agent who had called me up about it, David, and I said, uh, okay, I have six strips on a Sunday. And he goes, but last week you told me you weren't going to do it. I called him and told him you weren't going to do it. And I said, oh, okay. You know, all right. Guess I blew it. Okay. You know, and uh, uh, he says, why did you tell me? I said, because I didn't know. And, you know, and uh, if it stunk, I wasn't going to tell you, you know. And uh, anyway, we said, send them on to me. Well, they gave me the job. And uh, so... I had to try to put myself into, and they wanted to go back to an Ernie Bushmiller-esque style, but they wanted, you know, more, all the modern appliances and this and that, but they wanted a nostalgic feel to it. And so I, I did my very best with it. You know, I just did the best I could with it. And, uh, knowing, and, and my agent and I talked, I mean, it was a two year deal. But we were saying, oh, my gosh, if we get six months out of this thing, because when you change artists in a comic strip, 
all the other syndicates go after you and try to get your space in mm-hmm. the newspaper. It's very you know difficult real estate out there. And uh, but something happened, and the uh, the sales started to grow, and uh, my two year deal turned into a five year deal, into another one, into another one, into and before you know it, it's like two, 22 and a half years of me doing it. Uh, the last like 15 or so I was writing it, you know, on my own, my brother, Brad had helped me at the beginning. And, uh, so I got to say a lot of things, you know, for a very, very, very long time. Eventually, of course, the style morphed into more of mine, but that was over a very long period of time. And so, you know, if you go look at Ernie's stuff and you look at mine, they don't look anything alike, (laughs) but people always thought that they did. And that's very, very nice. That means I successfully have fooled you with smoke and mirrors once again. Thank you. You know that's <laughs> that's so great. Uh, I I want to ask at least about. Uh, I mean, I, again, I can keep asking about all these characters, but you had this really interesting thing that happened, uh, kind of in the mid '80s, when with the Pink Panther, and yeah. that is that you actually sort of helped bring the Pink Panther uh, comics back to life through this idea of think uh, pink thinks, or is it think pink? Um, and I, I want to understand all that. Okay. So actually it was to get Pink Panther back on television. That's what it was. I, my apologies. Uh, so I got a phone call from uh, Mike Georgopoulos, who was the head of uh, United Artists. And uh, Mike and I had worked together uh, previous years on other projects. And he called me up and it wasn't, can you draw Pink Panther? It was like, hey, the Pink Panther show just got canceled uh, on on Saturday morning. And we've got a big issue. You know, we we uh, we were not on TV and we have a deal with this. I think it was Corning. pink insulation company where the pink panther is the spokes character for this home insulation and we're about to lose millions of dollars because they're going to can't if they'll you know dump that if we can't get pink panther back on tv so can you think of something now i don't know i said well let me let me kind of think about it for a little while and a a few days later uh, i was thinking well you know pink panther's pretty cool you know he's really cool character that was his, you know, that was his perceived thing was just nothing ever bothered him. You know, it, he, he won every single time and he was just a chill dude. And at the time, the Reagans had a just say no campaign that was going on. Uh, say no to drugs, you know, say no to booze. To, and uh, So I wrote Pink Says Think. And I drew him being really, really cool, leaning up against the wall on a lamppost. Sometimes he had a leather jacket on and stuff like that. I don't know. I just drew some stuff. And then I called Mike and said, what if we propose this to municipalities or even to uh, the national government and see if they would like to use the character and this saying that was sort of sprayed in graffiti and then they wound up making a you know ten second PSA out of it, and that stayed on the air forever. And the Pink Panther was back on TV, and before you knew it, the show was back, you know, in another form, and this and that, and everything. And we all lived happily ever after. Very, very pink and cool. 
I'll tell you, we have, uh, I had to ask that question. We have another host on our network of shows. He's a stand-up comedian named Larry Smith and uh, he loves Pink Panther. So I had to make sure that I asked a question about Pink Panther, but I, this one's going to be kind of more of an abstract question here and take it wherever you want to go with it. But you have, you've drawn so many of these characters. Is there a particular character that you feel most embodies you? Oh, Hmm. Rolf, Rolf the dog. <laughs> I was wondering if you were going to say that because I've I've heard that impression from you a couple of times in this research, and it's pretty spot on. So, uh, yeah. And the older I get, you know, the more of an old dog I am. You know, <laughs> uh, uh, you know, because Rolf is really the heart and soul of the Muppets. Uh, you know, he was around before any of the other stuff. And, uh, you know, then he teamed up with Kermit and you know what happened there. And, uh, you know, and he's, you know, he's got this, you know, he's got this side of him that's very old showbiz, you know. And yeah, he's like, all right, well, if I got to work with the band, I got to work with the band, you know. (laughs) And, and, uh, you know, but I mean, yeah, my thing with, with Rolf is I'll tell you what, kid. In the 60s, I was top dog. I was at every hydrant at every top joint. Ciro's, the Copa. I was dating French poodles. I had a record deal. I was on Jimmy Dean. We were co-hosting Mike Douglas. Then the frog comes along. Well, hey, it's another show. It's movies. Everything's rocking along. Then Disney bought us. Now I live in a box. But that's showbiz. And, you know, he's always ready to come out of the box. You know, I think that when you get a lot of miles under your belt and a lot of shows under your belt, uh, nothing really phases you. And you're happy to be noticed. And you love what you do. And so you cherish the times that you get to do it. So I guess so. Okay. Okay. Is there a, uh, a character that I haven't asked about that you really enjoy drawing or, or what is your favorite? You know, do you, is it like picking children at this point at like thousands of children? Uh, what do you have a favorite that you like to draw? Yeah. Well, um, uh, I get that asked, uh, I get asked all the time and this is the God's honest truth. The character I'm drawing at that moment in the universe that I'm in is the only one that matters. So that's mm-hmm. going to be my favorite. Um, the reason that I can put my own, uh, that I can go into the Tom and Jerry universe or Looney Tunes or wherever I happen to be, Henson's universe, um, and be in there and do something that's meaningful for you means I need to take all of my concentration, all of my gifts and put it all in there and hope that it comes out good, you know, so that, so that everyone gets the, Uh, The result, you know, one of the things that's been interesting over the years is I I always get asked, too, about, you know, well, how do you find your own creativity within, you know, these characters that you do? You know, if you're working on somebody else's character and I'm going like, how can you not? Mm -hmm. I guess mean that, like, you know, you need to put your own stamp on everything. Well, I guess eventually my stamp is there because, you know, I, I, I've done a lot of different characters and my versions are everywhere. But I don't think of it that way. What I do is I think of, like, 
So I'll, when, let's say Tom and Jerry, right? So there are three distinct sort of Tom and Jerry's. There's the Tom and Jerry's in the middle. There's the Chuck Jones ones. And there's the early Hanna-Barbera ones. Now, we think of all of those and we like them all. And so now I have to distill that into a Tom and Jerry that's going to move forward. This was back 40 years ago, right? So I'm thinking of all of these guys and all of the work that they did. And I'm also thinking of everyone like me who loves the characters. And then my joy is trying to find my place within that, where I'm honoring this, continuing it forward, doing the stuff that you're going to like, and that brings me joy. So whatever style is my style, it comes out of that. That's, uh, so, that's yeah, so the, the creativity for me is is really in the how we do. Did we do OK? You know, you know, that kind of thing. That's so great. And uh, before I we like to we have a last question that we like to ask. But before I get there, I do want to talk a bit about you just messaging with you back and forth. You were talking an awful lot about your album and music. So that's also a passion of yours as well. So can you talk to me a bit about that? Sure. Well, uh, you know, I had a record that just barely broke the billboard charts. I I wrote it. I didn't sing it uh, back in 79 or 80. And uh, that really got the songwriting bug in me. And I've always had that going on the side of everything else. And, you know, sometimes I'm doing a lot of it. Sometimes I'm doing none of it, depending on what my production schedule is and what I'm working on in the rest of my life. You know, I've put out uh, uh, several albums, uh, you know, over the years, starting in around 2004 or five. Uh, of my own stuff. I've sung on the Grand Old Opry. The, uh, wow. Several of my records have you know, been played on the radio and uh, overseas, and they've been uh, anyway. But it's been a few years. And with COVID happening, and um, you know, I'm 65 now, and I have many, many friends, and I've lost many friends. And uh, so I uh, sort of made a decision that when I would come off the road this year, uh, I was going to do my first album and first full album in about seven years. So that's what I'm working on when I'm home. That's so great. And so we will be on the lookout for that uh, for sure. But also, I should say that after I had the chance to get some of your original art, I then also went scouring the web to see if you sell some of that art online as well. And you do. So I was wondering if you could help direct people to where they might be able to find uh, where that artwork would be. I'll tell you, I've got a couple of co-hosts for this show that you haven't met, but they love the Muppets. They love Mickey. They love uh, Tinkerbell and all of this that you have drawn as well. So I'm I'm wondering if there might be a Christmas present in there. Hopefully they don't listen to this interview. But but tell us where you go and find all of that. Uh, well, certainly, you know, I'm very active on all of the social and stuff like mm-hmm. that. So you'll find links uh, on Instagram and Facebook and all of that. Uh, but we have a website, aguygilchristproduction.com. And there's a store there and you can go to Guy's Pops, which has all the pops that I paint on. Also, original art, posters, all that kind of stuff that you can buy there. And then there are other links to, uh, you know, to auctions and all kinds of stuff uh, that are that are going on. And we're constantly like exploring new ways to get that stuff out to you wherever you happen to be in the world. Uh, and then of course there's the, you know, come and say hi when I'm on tour. 
Yeah, absolutely. And like I said, you you hit up a lot of the Comic Cons. Do you have some coming up? We're going to uh, post this interview next week. So where are you going to be in the next month or so? Are you still oh, doing the con uh, circuit? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah, I'm going to I'm actually really, really plug in uh, doing a bunch of them. And then I'm going to sort of take the third quarter of the year off. Uh, but I know that I'll be in Cincinnati uh, at that Comic Con. I'll be in Dayton, Ohio at Gem City. I'll be uh, in December. I know the one thing I'm going to do in December is L.A. OK, I'm also going to be at Terrificon, which is a great one in Connecticut at Mohegan Sun in a few weeks. Uh, so there are quite a few out there. And I'll be That's- back in Texas, I think, at some point in September or whatever. That's so great. And uh, Connecticut, almost like a homecoming for you, right? So that's yeah, pretty cool. It always is. Yeah, my daughter, my granddaughter, and all my you know high school buddies and everything like that, they're, they're all there. So we have a great time. That's awesome. So I promised a last question. And, and the last question that we normally ask people, uh, creative people in particular, that we get an opportunity to talk to is that you've done a lot of these types of interviews, whether they be podcasts or video interviews. And I'm wondering if there's ever a story or a message that you're not often asked about that you want to share. So kind of like an open floor to say, what is it that people are missing and that you would just like to share with our audience as we wrap up? I think that if we, I want, I want everyone to remember that you can do anything. I had no experience and, you know, the, you, you know, and, and anyone around me would have said I had no business doing any of the things that I got to do, except that I believed I did. This was my joy. This was my happiness. And I didn't see any walls. I really want you to remember Disney didn't either. Jim didn't either. Chuck Jones didn't either. Okay. You start today building bridges of friendships. Okay. With people that are like-minded know that you can do anything. There are no walls except for the ones that you create in your own brain. And if you follow that, you can do, you really, truly can make a difference and be happy. Oh, that is so such a perfect message to end on and some inspiration for our audience for sure. So Guy, thank you so much. Thank you for uh, talking to me at the con and letting me geek out for a second with you. Thank you for the artwork that's now on my wall. And thank you for the art and creativity you continue to put out into the world because it makes us all more whole. So thank you so much. Thank you very much. And uh, I I hope I get to see you on the road and anybody that's listening and viewing right now, I hope I get to see you. You can do anything you put your mind to, anything that you want, you can accomplish as long as you keep moving forward. That is such a great message that Guy left us on, and we're so grateful. Thank you so much, Guy, if you're listening back to this for the interview, for that art that you're putting out. I really do just appreciate the insights that you were able to provide to working with Jim Henson and really the industry as a whole, because sort of expressing how he was able to break into that industry and had a mentor that really guided him through the process. And now is mentoring others, giving back what he was given as a young artist. And I just think that that is something that 
we need more of in the world. And I'm so grateful that I had the opportunity to talk to him. I could have asked him about so many other characters. He also drew the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles for a long time. He's drawn Minnie Mouse. He's drawn Mickey Mouse before. Uh, working with Disney, working with Marvel, doing these either comic books or comic strips. He's also done some other animation uh, as well. And it's just like you could talk to him for hours. And I love that he's such a storyteller. It makes sense that he's a songwriter as well because he's able to tell these really great stories and antidotes about uh, working with particular people and how they interacted with him. And so it was just a treat to get a chance to talk to Guy today. And I would definitely recommend that if you are at a Comic-Con, there's a good shot that he's probably around. So if he is in that Artist Alley section, go and check it out, go and talk to him and also buy some of his work because it's incredible. I have, you know, it's, it's so cool to get a full color pencil drawing of Gonzo. And I will definitely, if it's not on the picture for the artwork for this episode, I will absolutely make sure that I post it in the beyond the mouse podcast pals group. And then that way you can see uh, the piece that I was able to get from guy back in St. Louis. It's been fun getting a chance to chat with guy here. Uh, I am looking forward to my co-hosts returning. I believe you'll have all three of us back next week. And I'm excited for that. If this is your first beyond the mouse, thank you so much for checking us out and make sure you go to Beyond the Mouse on any podcast platform. Also, we've been kind of making this push to, if you are a listener, please consider rating our show on Apple Podcasts or on Spotify. Those ratings actually, while I don't know if they actually help the algorithms, that's in question. They certainly do help with media availabilities and some other things that we have in the offing in the future. And so we would love for you to do that. We'll also spotlight a few of those as they come in on our show as well. You can, of course, follow us on social media, Beyond the Mouse Pod on Instagram, also Beyond Mouse on Twitter. You can find us on Facebook in two different places. You can find us at Beyond the Mouse Podcast, which is our page. But then also, I already mentioned that group, Beyond the Mouse Podcast Pals. Definitely go in there, check it out. It's a lot of fun. We get to talk all things Disney all the time and posting a bunch of different news articles and things like that in there just to get some responses. So go and check that out for sure. Holy moly, I got a chance to talk to someone who is just so prolific in this uh, animation space today. And, you know, it's just like, it's incredible. Like I, I take moments like this, especially when I can be a little sappy when the, the co-hosts aren't here. It's incredible what has happened and what's occurred over these last couple of years in terms of the creative people that I've had a chance to interact with and, and talk to. And it's, it's just remarkable. And it's kind of like, you know, that whole mindset of that growth mindset of if you really put the work in, you can work towards a goal. And it's not just saying positive thinking and uh, everything will be okay. It's you still have to do the work but you can do it. And I think that this is proof positive to that message that guy gave us at the very end, that if you continue to work at it, you can make things happen. Uh, we were just, a, you know, started this podcast, whatever, seven years ago and, and had no idea what we'd be accomplishing now. So it's just incredible. Thank you so much for listening. Uh, thank you for to Guy for his time and talent and uh, being willing to put that out there into the world uh, for all of us to love and to appreciate. So, so for Beyond the Mouse, I am Craig and we will see you real soon in the front row. Maybe in the front row reading a Muppets comic, right? Yeah, maybe not during the movie. We'll see. 
Bye, everybody.